So we uh, spent a few minutes last week discussing Israel's demand for king in 1 Samuel 8. And when we looked closely, we noticed uh, that a complex situation had developed among the people of Israel, who at least on paper ought to have asked for a king, but who were rebuked for doing so. First, there was this slowly building anticipation for a real-life flesh-and-blood coming king, a king who would rescue the people of God and embody the strength and mercy of God. And what we discussed last week was that this building expectation, the heightening hope for a coming king, was not only natural, it was right. It was appropriate and it was good. And how did we know that it was appropriate and good? We looked back in the scriptures and we saw that kings were foretold and they were expected and they were anticipated. God's blessing on his chosen people included kings as far back as Abraham. The law of God expected and permitted Israel to request a king when they arrived in their promised land. And the praise song of Hannah which was a hope template for the people of Israel, culminates in a vision of a coming king who would flesh and blood embody the reign and justice of God. But we also saw something else entirely. When the elders of Israel approached Samuel and asked for a king, they're rebuked in in a big way. They're warned that this is foolish and they're told that this request for a king was tantamount to an all-out rejection of God. This is what you've been doing all along, God says. Rejecting me. Choosing created things over creator. So the question I wanted to answer last week was this. How can the people of Israel simultaneously be encouraged to hope in a king and be rebuked for asking for a king? How can, on the one hand, Hannah's faith be championed when she sings praise songs about the glory of God manifest in the coming king of Israel? And on the other hand, the elders of Israel be lambasted for basically quoting Deuteronomy 17? That's a good question with a simple answer. They didn't want God's king. They were asking for it a king, but they didn't want the sort of king that God had in mind. How do we know this? Because they say it, plain and clear. So I, I want everybody to read it together one more time. We're not going to read the whole of First uh, Samuel 8, but let's start at verse 4. First Samuel 8, verse 4. And I want to read together. All the elders gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now, in a moment, we're going to read the warnings, but for now, I'd like you to skip down to the final paragraph of the chapter. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So that's the context. And you'll notice right there at the end, listen to the response of God's people. No. Look at that. Unambiguous rebellion. No, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. What we discovered is that the people of Israel weren't rebuked simply for asking for a king. They were rebuked for asking for a king who would replace God rather than represent him. Replace, not represent. That's a significant distinction. The people of God, or the people of Israel, wanted a king who would replace God and not a king who would represent God. I want to stop for a moment and I want to read you very quickly the the final words of Moses. Just before his death, Moses, after walking patiently with the people of God for years through a wilderness, Moses spends some of his final words on a blessing. And this is part of what he says. The Lord came up from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at His right hand. So this is a picture of God's rescue of His people. And note for a moment the words that Moses has used to describe that rescue. The Lord came from Sinai like the dawn. Like the dawn rising in the east, there is God surrounded by ten thousands of His angels with a sword of fire to deliver His people. Moses continues, yes, He loved His people. All His holy ones were in His hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jerushan. When the heads of the people were were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So this scene unfolds after the rescue of a nation of slaves. Think about this for a moment. A multitude, a nation of slaves delivered from their chains. And you watch as God's people are gathered before Him, this massive assembly. And here in the wilderness, God pauses to talk. 
He instructs them carefully, guiding them with the law, patiently teaching his children. And there is no ambiguity here. All of God's people, all of God's care and and God's guidance and God's instructions begin with love. Yes, he loved his people. That's what Moses says. God is, is king in Israel and his throne is founded on love. The love of God is the cornerstone of God's throne. And for that reason, Moses says, there is is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in His majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are His everlasting arms. And He thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? The shield of your help, the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. You see, there is no king like God. Why? Because he rides through the heavens to your help. Because he is your safe place, Israel, in his everlasting arms. There is no king like God because he protects his people from their enemies. Because he cares for his people. Because they eat bread and drink wine in a land covered in dew. For there is no king like God. Because he saved his people from chains. And he delivers them to a good land and he helps them and he protects them. There is no king like God. That's the king whom Israel has rejected. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we might be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they said. Okay, so what I'm trying to point out is that they already had a king who fought for them. And they already had a king who delivered them from their enemies. And they already had a king who judged them patiently and lovingly. God was king over Israel. God was. God who rescued them and delivered them and protected them and set them in a land flowing with milk and honey. But that wasn't enough. And that, that's why Israel was rebuked. It would have been right and appropriate for the people of Israel to reject the corrupt sons of Samuel and, and instead ask for a king who represented God. But they didn't want that. They wanted a replacement king. And God, in his wrath, said, okay. This morning, I want to discuss God's angry permission. God sometimes says, okay. And that okay is terror and darkness for you. God's angry permission should fill you with fear and should cause you to tremble. This morning, I want to reflect on God's warnings to his people about a coming king. Don't go that way. 
Don't go that way, son. That way leads to darkness and pain. And what I want to show you this morning is that Israel's brightest moment on paper, the moment when Israel got precisely what she wanted, exactly what she asked for, that moment was among Israel's darkest in reality. Brightest moment on paper, darkest moment on reality. So let's quickly read the warnings of God about this replacement king. And then I want to explore how those warnings came to fruition in a very exciting season. And I want to show you that this very exciting season was given to Israel as a measure of wrath. In other words, sometimes God gives us exactly what we want, and that day rarely is a good day. So look back at 1 Samuel 8. Let's start in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will, take your, he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of the king your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Okay, so there are a lot of details here, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on those. But I want you to make note of the major warnings. If you have a king, if you have this king that you're choosing for yourself, it's going to cost you. You'll lose everything. The king will choose The king you choose will take from you all of your favorite people and all of your choicest foods. He will take your family. I'm going to come back and reference this warning, but I just want to make quick bullet points. The king will take your sons. The king will take your daughters. The king will take your food. The king will take your stuff. And the king will take your people. Sons, daughters, food, stuff, people. That's the cost of a replacement king. And to that warning, the people said, no, you give us our king. And God said, okay. We're going to spend a few minutes this morning talking about Solomon. And I know that sounds like a major gear shift right now, but there's a point to it, so stay with me. Right there at the outset, when the people of When the people of Israel demanded a replacement king, even after God's many warnings, 
Right at that moment, God says, okay. And he gives the people what they want. Saul of Benjamin, tall and handsome. This was King Saul, the textbook king like all the nations. And he was a mess. Total disaster. Saul was a madman, haunted by his own hunger for power and the terror of losing it. Saul was awful, more than a little crazy, and things did not go well. And then God, in his mercy, says, I want to give you a sneak preview of the king of Israel. Let me give you a shadow of the true coming king, my king. Just a picture, just a shadow, but I want to show you what it's like to follow after a king who's following after me. Enter David, the shepherd king. Small and ruddy, poet, warrior, saint. God's king wasn't tall and shiny and glorious. God's king didn't stand head and shoulders over his peers. God's king was a shepherd boy. He was in the fields protecting sheep. He wasn't the eldest son. He was the youngest son. Look, I don't think of the statue in Italy when you think of David. Okay. He's butchering the Bible, that statue. That guy was pretty. <laughs> Tall and strong. Right? The point of the Goliath narrative is to show the juxtaposition between a tall, strong, mighty warrior and this little shepherd boy, right? David wasn't that guy. He wasn't Michelangelo's statue. And he didn't fight with the might of men. He fought with the power of God. God's man, God's king, steps onto the battlefield with a handful of rocks and no armor. And instead of brandishing a sword and a shield, he brandishes the name of God. And, and just for a moment, the people of Israel are given a picture of what the coming king will be like. Just for a moment. And as David grew old, the kingdom started to buzz with rumors of prophecies. A coming, a coming king, the son of David. Have you heard about the son of, son of David? The house of David is the hope of Israel, and the son of David will reign in glory forever and ever. The son of David would sit on an everlasting throne. So with much expectation, the people shouted cries of victory and hope at the ascension of King Solomon. Solomon, son of David, the glory days of Israel. So Solomon is a fascinating character. He's kind of a riddle an enigma of a character in the unfolding story of scriptures because there really are two Solomons. Or at least it seems like there is. Because on, on the one hand, this guy wrote significant chunks of scripture. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, 
Song of Songs. And this, this guy was the wisest guy that ever was, and perhaps among the wisest that ever will be. But on the other hand, Solomon is a total disaster. He represents on one level the hope of Israel and embodies on the other level the hopelessness of Israel's rebellion. It's a puzzle. But I want to show you something and help me get a little bit how to read Solomon or at least a tool that helped me get closer. There are two records of the kings of Israel in the Bible. We have the Samuel King's record And you can think of Kings as a sequel to the book of Samuel, like two parts in a series. And then there's Chronicles. And these books speak about the same kings in nearly the same way, but with different emphases. What's fascinating is when you you see two clearly different perspectives on the same situation. Not different as in they don't record the same events, but different in the way those events are recorded. I think the best way I've heard it explained is that Samuel and Kings together clearly and carefully say the kings of Israel were not the final hope of Israel. And the Chronicles, which were literally, it was the last book in the Hebrew Bible, says clearly and carefully the kings of Israel were like the final hope of Israel. Did you catch that distinction? One says the kings of Israel were not the hope of Israel. The other says the kings of Israel were like the hope of Israel. Both accounts equally messianic, equally pointing forward to Jesus the coming king of Israel, but they're doing it in different ways. One is saying, no, David was not the hope of Israel. Don't don't look back on David's reign as the glory glory days. Those were not the glory days. He was just a shadow. And the other is saying, remember David? That was a picture of our hope. Look at how he proclaimed the name and reigned in power. Look at how his throne was blessed. Yes, David was the shadow of the coming king. Samuel and Kings are right smack in the middle of the Hebrew Bible, just after the Torah. And so as you read, your expectations are building. Is this this the hope of Israel? Is this how God's going to rescue His people? Is this the king we've been looking for? And when you open Samuel and you continue to read through Kings, you find darkness and you find wickedness. You see details, scary and upsetting details about the messiness of the kings of Israel. And so the answer is no. No, this this is not the hope of Israel. If David was the hope of Israel, Israel has no hope. And then you turn the pages. And you begin to read prophecies of a coming king a coming son of David, a branch from Jesse's stump, and your hope is renewed. Perhaps God isn't finished with his people. What should we expect of this king? And then at the very end of the Hebrew Bible, you come across a second account of the kings. 
And, and this account highlights the faithfulness of David the shepherd king. And it, and it takes time to highlight the glory of the kingdom of Solomon. And it says, this is what the king is going to be like. So the reason I bring that up is because Solomon himself is a bit of an enigma. And the, and the riddle of the dual nature of Solomon is solved for me in a promise that's made to David. Listen to this. This is the promise as recorded in Kings. When your days... This is God talking to, to, to David. God talking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so God says to David, when your days are fulfilled, I will raise up a son after you and I will establish his kingdom I will be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. And listen to this. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but I won't take away my love. Now that makes sense and we're already beginning to see that Solomon, the son of David, is not the great hope of Israel. Now let me read you that same promise from Chronicles. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. What was missing? Right? When your days are fulfilled, I'll raise up a son after you, I'll establish his kingdom, I will be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me, and his throne will be established forever, period. No iniquity. No rod, just promise of a coming glorious, never-ending kingdom. Both texts are about Solomon, and both texts are about Jesus. Now here's the trick. You can't read about Solomon in only one of those two ways. He's both. He, he's always working in both directions. That's why for me, reading Ecclesiastes is such a riddle. Because this guy is crafting brilliant and profound poetry. And in Song of Songs, he, he celebrates the covenant of marriage and looks forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
And this guy is literally butchering and desecrating the God-given gift of marriage with a thousand women. Gifted by God with wisdom unparalleled, he bows to idols of stone and surrounds himself with wicked pleasures. So I say all this for a reason. Solomon led Israel to her glory days. I'm not kidding. There perhaps has never been and perhaps will never be a kingdom richer than Solomon's. They stopped counting silver when Solomon was king. Can you imagine? That's how wealthy the people of Israel were. And fame, the great and famed queen of the south traveled for weeks just to meet him. He was spectacular. And he was renowned. And he was brilliant. Men and women and kings and queens and nations marveled at Solomon, king of Israel. And in this way, he was like the coming king. Just a shadow. But I want to read one more text. I want you to read this one with me. Go to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11. Let's start at verse 43. Now Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as, so, as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard about it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from Solomon, Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, listen to this, this is the people of God addressing the replacement king. Your father made our yoke heavy now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and, and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Now, I want you to skip down to chapter 12, verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariots to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. As soon as he ascended the throne, King Solomon conscripted 
30,000 citizens of his kingdom for hard labor. 30,000. They were allowed to spend two months working their own fields, and then they were forcibly taken, 10,000 at a time, in shifts. Two months to work the fields because there were taxes to pay. One-third of their lives were spent in service to the king. There were 153,600 sojourners in Israel, men and women not of Hebrew blood. How do we know this? Because Solomon made slaves of them all. Every one of them. The law is riddled with commands to treat the sojourner among you with kindness and with hospitality and with love because you too, remember Israel? You too were once a sojourner in a foreign land. Solomon made them all slaves. Every day his table was full. This is staggering. I, I, don't even, I can't even wrap my mind around it. Every day... 6,890 liters of flour, 13,782 liters of meal, 10 oxen, 20 pasture-fed cows, 100 sheep, as well as gazelle, roebuck, and fattened chickens were delivered to his table. Every single day. Every single day. Never has the world seen such opulence. Now, in that day, we had, in that moment, we've got to read Solomon both ways, right? Both ways. One way isn't good enough. He's working in both directions. Because when you see Solomon surrounded by staggering wealth and unbelievable feasts and the fame of nations, that's a shadow of King Jesus who will reign over his people after all things are made new. And there will be no suffering in that kingdom and there will be no want. And He will reign in wisdom and His fame will be whispered in every corner of the universe. That's a picture right there. It's a picture of God's King. But just now, when you see Solomon taking 700 wives... And when you see 10 oxen and 20 cows and 100 sheep slaughtered to provide for his table every single day, knowing that those are coming from the farms of hard-working slaves. Look, when you, when you notice that it took 153,600 slaves 13 years just to build his home. When you realize that all of that wealth Every pleasure was stolen off of the backs of slaves. Legions of men and women and children broken on a single man's whim. That's a picture of the replacement king. These are the glory days. These were the glory days of Israel. Never has a nation seen such wealth, such favor, such popularity. 
Here was Israel risen above the nations. And the people would go to war not to have it again. I want you to see something very clearly. The warnings of God that we read in 1 Samuel 8, the warnings of God were issued not to explain what would it be like on a bad day. The warnings of God weren't issued to teach the people what it might be like if they didn't land the perfect king, if they didn't shoot high and reach for the stars and realize their dreams. The warnings of God about a king who would replace him were issued to explain the best case scenario. Best case scenario. If you get everything you hope for, peace on all sides, riches like you wouldn't believe, and fame, oh, the fame, it will be so sweet. This is what it will cost you. Everything. It will cost you everything, and you will hate it so much that you'll go to war not to have it again. That's the tragedy of God's okay. And that teaches us something about our wants. When the people of Israel cried out, never again, they were teaching us what it's like to get what you want and then to hate who you are and where you are and what you've done to yourself. Think, think about that moment in Shechem. The nation of Israel decided to wage war against the house of Solomon, the most powerful house in all of human history. And they shook their fists. And they cried out in rage at the idea of doing it all over again. They will strap on sword and shield and risk their lives and the lives of their sons not to do that again. And that's what it's like. That's what it's really like to have a replacement king. This morning, you stand at a crossroads. And not just this morning, every morning of every day, every moment, you stand at a crossroads. To the left, the kingdom of Solomon. You may have it if you wish. There it is in all of its glory, full of sex and feasts and peace on all sides. More pleasure than you can imagine. The kingdom of Solomon is there available to you. The world is what it is because God gave His angry permission. And if you so choose, you may have your replacement king. The kingdom of Solomon is always there, always within reach. And you may very well get exactly what you want from it. Riches are there, vast riches. Toys and trinkets to distract us. Bank accounts with nine digits. Is the world short of these? 
Sex is there. Pleasures that you can hardly imagine. Just to click away, just to call away, just to drink away. Peace is there of a sort. Easy years of retirement, free of labor, hard toil. The kingdom of Solomon is just to your left, and your, your replacement king is sitting on his throne ready to receive you. Know this now. Real pleasure is available to you, okay? Be honest with yourself. The things you crave are there, within reach. I think sometimes our strategy to fight sin is to pretend that the world wouldn't give us exactly what we want right then. But that isn't true. You need to be honest. The kingdom of Solomon is rich. And if you choose a replacement king, there's a very good possibility that you'll have for a season riches, pleasures, peace on all sides. But that replacement king comes at an unimaginable cost. So you stand at a crossroads. To your left is the kingdom of Solomon. And to your right is the kingdom of Christ. Now the path to the kingdom of Solomon is paved and wide, just a short jaunt. In hardly a moment, you'll be drinking in the taverns of Solomon's kingdom. The path to the kingdom of Christ is stony. There are thorns. It takes, over, it takes you over vast mountains. You fight through blizzards on it. You'll make camp in the deep winter and in sweltering heat. And that journey will consume many long days. Go read Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan does not shy away from telling you that it's going to be miserable in the wilderness. It's a long and hard and arduous journey, but oh, what a king who sits on the throne of the kingdom of God. We're going to take, to we're going to take home today two strategies to choose the better kingdom. I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about two tools. There are more, but we're just going to talk about two tools today that you should always keep in your tool belt to help you choose the better kingdom. Because it isn't enough to read this passage and say, look at Israel. They made a wrong decision. They chose the wrong king. They embraced the wrong kingdom. Don't be like Israel. Don't do that. That didn't go well for them. It's easy to say those words. Hindsight's always 20-20. But this passage is richer than that. Because it doesn't just give you an example of Israel to behold. It gives us a map to follow a better way. Okay, so two tools to choose the better kingdom directly from the passages we've just read. First, remember that the kingdom of Solomon will cost you everything. Listen to the warnings of God about the replacement king. You may have him, 
but you'll lose your sons and your daughters and your food and your stuff and your people. You'll lose them. And you'll be left a slave to the king whom you've demanded. What a picture of sin. Look, stop pretending that the pleasures of Solomon's kingdom don't feel great. That's a bad strategy. It doesn't work. You won't fight sin successfully by lying to yourself. The pleasures of Solomon's kingdom are overwhelmingly pleasant. You don't fight porn by pretending that it won't feel great, that it won't satisfy you in that moment. You, you fight Horn by remembering that your sons and your daughters and your spouse are at risk. You, you fight porn by remembering your home and your dinner table. You fight porn by remembering that you're going to lose all of those things and end a slave. You don't fight workaholism by pretending that the affirmation of your boss doesn't feel great. You don't fight workaholism by pretending that your ever-increasing salary isn't going to bolster your pride and fill your pockets. It will. Easily. <laughs> you fight workaholism by looking at your daughters and asking whether it's worth not knowing her. You fight workaholism by envisioning a future wherein you're estranged from your spouse, from your kids, from your best friends. You fight workaholism with the vision of sitting in an office on top of a bank account filled with piles of cash and no friends and no family and no hope. The, the slavery of Solomon's kingdom is all-consuming, and I haven't even touched eternity. I haven't even mentioned the fires of hell. You keep chasing sin, and you'll get what you want for a moment, but it will cost you everything in this life. And that slavery and that oppression and that hopelessness is nothing, absolutely nothing next to the darkness awaiting you if you reject the King of Israel. Adultery isn't defeated by pretending that it isn't precisely what you'll want it to be. And that it doesn't feel like exactly what you'll want it to feel like. Adultery is defeated when you realize that it will cost you everything. Is this momentary pleasure worth the sum of all that I love? Shall I sell myself into slavery for this trifle? That's a good question, and that's our first tool. The second tool, and far and away, the better one. Gaze upon the beauty 
of the king of Israel. Paul was stoned by the Jews of Antioch and left for dead. The next morning, bruised and bloody, he gets up, he grabs his stuff, and he makes his way to the next city, preaching the gospel. And the next time he comes back to Antioch, you know what he says? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> what? That's amazing. Imagine the bruises. Imagine the bruises. He had to be covered in bruises for weeks. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, you should expect pain. You should expect suffering. You should expect trials. How, how do you press on when stones are hurled in your direction? How do you press on carrying a cross? How do you press on through, though the, the road is long and steep, though the blizzard beats hard against you? How do you press on to the better kingdom through shame and through poverty and through cancer? Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember the king. Remember him. Remember what he's like. Compare him to King Solomon. Look to the east. Rising like the dawn, the rescue of God's people. Christ the King, surrounded by ten thousands, ready to rescue his brothers and sisters and set all things new. Christ the King bought his people from slavery. That's the kind of king who awaits us. He bought them with his blood. They are his now, secured by sacrifice. And he's coming to get them. Remember your king who bought you. Remember that he found you enslaved and he broke your chains and he's walking with you to a promised land. That's your story if you're in Christ. Don't think about it in the abstract. Remember, you've got it in your head. It's probably always there for reference. Remember your darkest moment. He swept you up from those things. He broke your chains. He's walking with you patiently. You know who you are. To the degree that your spouse is patient with your awfulness on a grouchy morning, infinitely more so, Christ is patiently walking with you through the wilderness. Remember, that he's patiently 
instructing you. And he's teaching you about the beauties of the coming kingdom. Teaching you how to find real, lasting joy. Remember that his throne is founded on love. Remember the king who will set all things new. Remember his joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. For the joy set before... What joy? What joy drove the king of kings to be slaughtered by the wretched? What joy was so powerful that it fueled the king of kings to stand silently through torture, through derision, through death? What joy could have driven the king of glory to submit to the cross? The kingdom. His kingdom. Full of his people. Shouting of the glory of God forever and ever. The kingdom that he's purchased for his people. The wedding feast and the forever joy of the kingdom of God. Take that picture of King Jesus in all of his glory. Having been broken for you and having risen through death, having bought you and patiently walked with you and interceding for you. Keep it there. Right there. And temptation will come. And as it comes, so that will cost me everything and he's better. He's better. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. But oh, what a kingdom. And oh, what a king. Amen? Let's pray.